we've got students all over the world. You know, we've got students who are in time zones that are 14 hours ahead of us. During the last few weeks of school closures, we've put out episodes about how higher ed and K-12 education are changing because of the coronavirus. And we asked you all to send in stories and snapshots about your own experiences adapting to this time. 8 a.m., I head down to the corner of the basement where I've set up my classroom behind and partially under our foosball table. I've had several of my seniors email me and say, I know you won't believe this, but I miss school. (laughs) Okay, we're not doing cake right now, buddy, but you can have cake after, okay? After bedtime? No, after I'm off my phone call, okay? From APM Reports, this is Educate. I'm Alex Baumhart, one of the producers on the podcast. I got to talk with some of you about what it's like. University professors, high school teachers, parents, parents who are also students. Isla Cunningham lives in McKinney, Texas. She taught for a decade before taking time off to raise her three kids and work towards a master's degree in education. She's about halfway through that degree, and she's been taking most of her classes online. Now she helps her kids with their online classes, too. Her oldest daughter is finishing kindergarten, and Cunningham says she's impressed with the way her daughter's teachers have adapted. So they're a team of four, the kindergarten team, and what they've done, which I think is brilliant, is they have split up the subjects, one per teacher, each Lesson they do is um, a video lesson of them, and you know they give the kids time for feedback to answer the questions. So Hallie's like sitting here talking to her teachers, which is like so cute, and they love it, and it's engaging. So that's been wonderful, and the assignments they've done has been great. Like go on a nature walk in your backyard and collect some sticks and rocks and soil, and that will be one day. And then the next day they sort the rocks, and then the next day they, you know, draw a picture of the rocks. And so I just I really do feel like they've done a good job of doing hands on, not just busy work. Cunningham says she's been thinking a lot about how this type of online learning can exacerbate inequities among students. In the last podcast you had, it was brought to my attention that Seattle is not providing any online learning because of like the inequitable situation and like, which I totally see. And I don't know, I'm such a, I'm so like, I don't know where I stand on that. It's so difficult to know. I mean, I do think it is like a gut knee jerk reaction and like a bandaid to a problem that may need further hopefully doesn't, but may need further addressing. But I don't know, that's something I've been like really thinking a lot about and um, contemplating. So I think that is a huge issue and important thing to think about going forward for just for online learning in general. I think it's so, so important. Sheila DeRose is a speech pathologist at Bolingbrook High School in Illinois. I reached her over the phone to talk about what it's been like to assist students inside of virtual classrooms every day. We have several students with high levels of anxiety or school phobia, and they are doing quite well. They like being on the computer. In fact, we're wondering if they're going to want to come back to school in the fall, if they will want to continue this type of learning. Now, that being said, I work with special ed students, and they are having a difficult time because I they regularly tell me that they don't always understand. They work in Google Classroom. The teachers give assignments, and I can see the assignments that they get, and then I can help them. But it's really you know difficult over Zoom sometimes for kids who need a lot of support. 
And and what do you do? I mean, is there? I try to support them the best I can. Um, I have a lot of seniors, and some of them are not so interested in even doing anything because what the students were told is that if they never did another thing this school year, that they would get the grade that they had when they left. And I was kind of upset that they were told that because it didn't give them much incentive to continue working for, for a lot of them who really, you know, don't want to do the work anyway. Um, so I just support them the best I can. I, you know, help them with the assignment. What's attendance like? I've had, it's up and down for me. I schedule Zoom meetings every week with all of my students. And, you know, we're all just trying to, you know, find some of our students. They've just gone MIA. We we can't, you know, they aren't responding. All we can do is, you know, send things out to them via either Google Classroom or the school email. And if they don't respond, we don't have a choice. And I did learn today that some of the administrators will be going out to the homes of some of the students who have not responded in any way to any of the multiple times we've reached out to them. So we'll see if that helps. Is that a, are there many or? There are quite a few. So um, it's unfortunate. Uh, we have, it's a wide range. Bolingbrook is a wide range of socioeconomic, you know, levels. And so we have students who have a lot of trouble with internet service. And so they're sending out internet hotspots to them or doing something with a local um internet company to try to get them service, but we're already two weeks into this and they're, you know, already behind now because we're just finding out, you know, once we finally get in touch with a parent and they say, oh, our internet, we don't have internet at home or we don't have enough service so spotty that they can't really get on and do the work the way they need to. So Mm -hmm. we're trying everything we can do to help those situations when we know about them. Becky Carey is a biology instructor at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. She says switching to online teaching has been helpful for understanding when students just aren't getting the material. Zoom has a feature where you can enable polling in a meeting and you can choose to have it anonymous or not anonymous. And when I'm covering content, I like to pause and ask the students questions just to make sure they're still with me to see if they're engaged and to see if they've understood what I've said or if I need to go back over it. And pretty much anybody who's ever taught can tell you how, how awkward it feels when you ask a question and it's just dead silent even when it's something that the students had already talked about when they were working in groups, but they're just not confident enough of their answers to be willing to risk saying it in front of everybody. Because nobody likes to be wrong in front of a room full of people. And, you know, my, my students are not exceptions to that. So sometimes it's really hard to get them to answer questions. So what I tried to do was turn as many of those questions as possible into something approximating multiple choice, which is a little harder to do, but not a lot, and then enabling anonymous polling. And so when I got to that point where I was asking them a question, I'd bring the poll up, and rather than having to sit and wait for somebody to be willing to say something, 
it took less time to get all of my students to pick something in the poll since they knew nobody could possibly judge them if they got it wrong because even I wouldn't know who'd chosen what. Mm. And getting that level of engagement from my students was it was really great. It's not really something I've had happen very often. It also, there were some points where like, I threw in a question that I thought was going to be an easy one to just sort of get things going. And just over half the class got that one wrong. And I realized, okay, I did not do as good a job handling this material as maybe I thought I did. I need to go back over that because frequently the ones who will volunteer to speak up and answer a question are the ones who know the material best and are therefore likely to be right. And so I don't get that feedback of, okay, half the room is not with me right now. I need to spend some more time on this part. So being able to do that and being able to get that judgment of, where my students are at what the overall level of understanding is was honestly exhilarating it was it was great i'm really going to miss that when we go back into the classroom i re- i'm really looking forward to getting back into the classroom but i'm going to miss that sort of instant feedback Anya Rasmussen is a physics instructor at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. She, like many others, had to overhaul her course to work online in a pinch. So I was actually teaching um, my Physics 201, so the calculus-based introductory physics class, at the time when the students all got the email that we were transitioning to online class. So I actually found out through just the murmur going through my classroom. Um, Everybody, you know, the buzz started going around like, oh my gosh, it's all going to be online after spring break. She says making the transition was a wake-up call to some instructors who had shirked technology for years. Some instructors quickly learned that going online was impossible for some of the upper-level physics classes, where students need to be building things with their hands and using equipment they simply don't have at home. So I think different peers, there there was different attitudes towards it. And I actually got a little bit of pushback when I I said that I I thought it was somewhat generational. So amongst my peers, I'd see some that really, really didn't want to move to online. Some of these are peers that are are at my university, others um, that I've heard about or I know from other university settings um, that are really uncomfortable. I've heard, I have friends who have colleagues at other universities that rarely, if ever, checked their email. So I just can't imagine this change just being monumental for some. Um, And then of course, in a physics department, we have upper division classes that are primarily hands-on and lab-based. So like the instructor of the electronics course was just like, I don't even know how we would even begin to do this remotely. Mm -hmm. So so some of it was, you know, based on um, exposure to technology. And some of it is some things I think really would be next to impossible to suddenly transition to online without being able to put together a huge amount of equipment. 
As an educator, and I'm over 50, I look back at the last month and cannot believe how quickly I've been catapulted into the 21st century of technology-infused teaching. This is Laura Cooper. 8 a.m., I head down to the corner of the basement where I've set up my classroom behind and partially under our foosball table. She's a teacher in Washington State. With a lot of help from colleagues, having had zero experience with anything tech, I am now a confident user of all things Google Classroom, Seesaw, Zoom meetings and videos, document cameras, scans, uploads, downloads, YouTube channels, etc. Now that we've been at this for over a month, I can look back and recognize the grieving process I went through to have to let go of my old ways. First week was shock and panic. I can't do this, etc. Second week, denial. This takes so long. There's no way I can keep this up until June, etc. Third week, anger. That's it, just anger. And fourth week, acceptance. Okay, this isn't going away. I've got this and maybe even like it a little bit. I'm proud of how everyone around me has risen to this challenge. Proud of myself, my students, my students' parents, and my own college kids who I'm thrilled to have this unexpected time with. That's my story. I attached a kindergarten phonological. Thanks for your stories. Please keep telling us more. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Educate Podcast, or you can email us at contact at apmreports.org. This episode was produced by me, Alex Baumhart, and edited by Chris Julin. It was mixed by Johnny Vincevens. We partner with The Heckinger Report, a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, the Hollyhock Foundation, and Stephen and Wendy Gall. Thanks for listening. This is APM.